you're observing, you can learn. If you're surrounded by the right people, you have the right partnership, there is trust, you're vulnerable, you tend to connect with people at a much deeper level. And I think if you can break a problem down into the first elements, you know, you have a chance at learning those things, you know. So that has been my approach, you know. I'm not afraid to ask questions that could be really dumb, you know. I still recall like in 2009 or 10, I was not really good at sales, although I was uh, part of team selling software to Fortune 500, but I didn't really know a lot about sales. So it was really reading about first, what is the right framework? It's spin, it's situation, problem, I didn't... uh, investigation need and then surrounding again back with the salespeople, seeing how they are doing it over and over again so those seeds are planted in my mind and they become saplings and then you nurture them and you pick those skills up Welcome, I'm your host Dino Cattaneo and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Last week, we talked about the portfolio life with Christina Wallace. She emphasized the importance of diversification in a world that is moving faster and faster. And in some ways, today's guest is a proof of that. His name is Rishi Bhatia and he's an old friend of mine. Right now, he's the CEO of Purple Carrot, a plant-based meal company. I had the opportunity to observe Rishi's work pretty closely about a decade ago when we worked together for over a year. I always admired him as a leader and I knew that at some point he would be a guest on the podcast. And today, it's actually a great opportunity to continue the conversation around diversification of skills. Rishi followed a somewhat unique path in his career. He rose through the technology and product ranks in the business-to-business high-tech sector, but he ended up as a CEO of a direct-to-consumer food company. In our conversation, he shared his path, how he kept a learning mind throughout his career, and some of the unique roles that he took along the way, roles that allowed him to become a CEO in a completely different industry. And since he spent a lot of time in companies held by venture and private equity firms, he also shared some great tips about how to negotiate the relationship between the executive leadership team and the investors. So this is going to be a really rich podcast, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I love talking to my old friend, Rishi. Rishi, welcome. I'm going to start by being honest with my listeners. I think it was about 11 years ago, I had an offer to join a company where you were uh, as a digital marketing officer. And I knew that in order to be successful, I needed to get along with the CTO and head of products. So before I accepted the offer, I asked him if I could meet with him. And I think it's been a beautiful friendship ever since. I realized five minutes into that conversation, you've been a great partner. I think we had a good run for the year and a half that I was there. And it has been amazing to watch you over the past 11 years go from a great technology leader to a CEO. So I'm proud to be your friend. And thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me, Dino. I, I still remember the day we met. In fact, you know, what I've really enjoyed with you is sort of like a holistic approach to life. I've always felt that not only you had balance in the professional life, your personal life and your values, sort of like what mattered to you, that not only came to your professional life, but it was like, I felt that you were very well-rounded from our initial first conversation and deeply appreciate the friendship. Now that we had that out of the way, as some people know that this is going to be a highly biased conversation on my part, <laughs> I want to start maybe 
if you're comfortable sharing with my listeners your story, how you came to the U.S. and how you, you got started in your career. Yeah, sure, Candina. So originally, I grew up in the northern part of India, finished my engineering, and I came to U.S. in late 90s and you know, came with a dream in two suitcases with uh, not a whole lot and worked for a startup on the West Coast in the healthcare space. They got acquired by Sun Healthcare. Then I moved to CA Technologies for, you know, about nine and a half years I was there and really did a lot of like enterprise software development for Fortune 500. I was a developer first, then I got promoted into increasing responsibilities and ended up leading, you know, a lot of like new products into new markets because CA had um, way back, you know, footprint in the enterprise software world. And um, they were migrating more towards back then into, you know, from mainframe into desktop, then into more towards like a bit towards like managed infrastructure. So all that, you know, had to be leveled up and uh, I was part of that journey. So I got moved around in FCA a lot into products that were nascent or products that were in trouble, had a great run there. So I think in a sense, it has been a great journey so far, but I'm learning all along. There are certain lanes where the the transition, you know, as you get into more of a leading role can be more challenges. I think lanes where people, their their first level of skill is really is a practical execution level of skill, right? Scientists, uh, technologists. As you started moving into more of a leadership role, what were some of the principles and, and sort of how did you start thinking about how you wanted to lead other people on your teams? Yeah, I mean, if I can be vulnerable, I can I can still remember, you know, and this is like back in 2002, there was a product that was competitor to Informatica. It was really for moving sort of like a data mapping management tool. And it had a team of like 15 to 25 developers. And I was a developer just starting in this country. And I got promoted into managing that team. And literally at the onset, you know, I had a breakdown because I've never managed people before. I felt I did not even had a competency to do so, but somehow the senior VP and the CTO, they decided to make me the manager. So I still remember that it was a really sort of a tough path for me in the beginning, but really I had to go back and um, challenge my own mental model. And it's sort of like if you take a step back, right, it's like cascade of skills, right? If you're good at math, but then you get into accounting, your skills are slightly more valuable. You get into FP&A and you are working on scenario analysis, they are more valuable. You go into business modeling, they become more valuable. You go into becoming a CFO, they even become more valuable. So I think one of the things that has really helped me in life is I love to learn. I'm curious. So it's like cascading skills to go to a higher value proposition, sort of for myself and the people around me. I believe that uh, everyone has a, a lot of innate potential. And in order to unlock that, you need to be in the right situation with the right incentives and the right values. I think if you can combine sort of the mission with the cultural aspect and with execution, you can unlock that lingering potential. Was there a moment or an episode where maybe you went through something challenging and, and it helped you kind of like figure out how you wanted to work with other people, lead them? Is there a story that you would feel comfortable sharing? 
I mean, there are tons and tons of them and not all of them were successful, Dean. So a lot of failures also, you know. Way back, you know, I think I can go back in 2002, 2003 when I got promoted into a management role and we had like a team of developers that were there for a long period of time. And some folks, I mean, this was like highly accomplished team, but somebody on the team was not pulling their weight and the previous senior VP was not able to tackle that situation. But after the listening tours of the team, I realized that person had to be really offboarded. And I made that decisive role. And I think that gave me winning the trust of the team because they were not pulling their weight. That's sort of like not a great example. Somebody was offboarded, but they were lingering in the organization for a long period of time. But it came back to sort of uh, what's the right thing for the business and the team while being as human as you can. You know, we've talked about the early phase of your career, and then uh, there's a there's a big run of being in startups or larger companies, some successful, some maybe at, at times less challenging. What made you want to go more into that type of environment? You know, high growth, high maybe high risk. Yeah, I think it uh, goes back to, you know, I think um, it's almost like the pace of the organization is different. When when you work for a large company where you have like 15, 20,000 employees and your footprint or your impact is sort of like, even at best case, you know, it's an addition, it's not a multiplier. So in order to amplify sort of like your rate of learning and the impact that you can make, I felt that, you know, 100, 200, 300 employee organizations, that way I can have a bigger impact and I can intensify the pace of learning. As a result, I decided to switch out of a large enterprise software development into startups. And uh, after CA moved to Thurston Media, we were the pioneers in mobile advertising. We had 50% of the U.S. traffic on the platform, had a great run. A lot of like new technology to market, new innovation to market. Some of that isn't still in use today. So that would not have been possible at CA in like two and a half years, you know. So I think the rate of change, innovation, learning, failure, it's really different with the uh, mid-size or growth stage startups. You've spent all this time leading different teams in different environments. If you were to say the key traits of the leader that you aspire to be, how would you describe them? Yeah, so I don't, I don't think so, Dino, by any means I'm there, right? I think when you asked me to do this podcast, I was like, I'm not ready for it, but I, I still feel that I'm learning and I'm scratching the surface. For me, it's about a massive impact that is purpose-led in millions of lives, you know, at Purple Carrot, I, I, we are doing fairly well, but aspirations to scale the company are a lot bigger. And I think the kind of leader is someone who has created a legacy of an impact and change. And how about like the the way that you relate to your team? If you think about like, you know, the, the key traits in terms of like being an effective leader and how to relate with your team, how, how do you want to lead? Yeah, I think, Adina, a lot of that comes with the, when you happen to be at a leadership team, you know, at any company, your role really becomes, you know, is the mission right? Do you have the right culture? Is the team executing at the highest self? In order to do that, to me, the leadership's job is really to convert that lingering potential in self and leadership and the team to really ensure that execution is happening at a fast pace. In order to do that, you know, a lot of like what the cultural attributes that you need is a driver mindset. In this life, you have people who are drivers or passengers. 
in a, in a growth, like I think that was a Volkswagen um, ad way back, right? So if you're in a growth stage startup and you're a passenger, that's not the right place for you. You need to find a place that's going to be better attuned to your values. But if you have the driver mindset, it's really important to be collaborative. Because I think if you're just a driver, you don't have collaboration skills, you know, you leave a lot of people behind. So it's combination of having driver plus collaborative plus thinking big and making it happen. A sense, you know, that captures it. But I think at a leadership level, it's really important that um, you let the best ideas in the organization win. It doesn't really matter where they come from. So how do you really size those ideas up? You know, this combination of intuition, customer-led data points, and uh, a business model, matrices. You know, you need to combine the KPI customer some data and some intuition to make those decisions, you know. So you've done something that it's not easy to do, which is get to a CEO role, starting out from a product and technical um, side. Are there points when you think about your career for other people who, who are coming from product, I mean, from a technology product side, so people with a strong engineering type background, what are some of the key steps that you took that you think have enabled you to get to a CEO role? You know, I think I also believe, Dino, I got like fortunate or lucky at the right points in my professional life. And I got those breaks, you know, from developer to a manager to director to leading both product and engineering for a very long duration of time, leading marketing here and there, leading operations and customer service. I, I think I feel that the the highest thing that over time, if you happen to be in any kind of like a role that requires a lot of introversion and sort of like doing things by yourself, you know, you really need to master the human element. That human element is like mastering your own self, knowing your own values, but then relating with people where they are coming from and figuring out sort of like, how do you like unlock the potential that you have in others in the teams. And I, I don't think so that's by any means. Some people have that have those skills naturally. And it's something that was acquired for me, Dino. It was not something that was natural to me. So I have to do a lot of reading, a lot of situations. I did some courses. I did some coaching. I had a mentor. I got coaching. So I went out, I went down personally on this path because I felt that um, I needed to learn a lot. You mentioned that there were moments in your career where you, you led, you know, other functions like marketing or service. What were some of the challenges in shifting from managing technologists and engineers to managing marketers or <laughs> service people? Because it's a very different personality type, right? So what were some of the challenges and, and what were some of the steps maybe that you took in order to kind of like be successful in those different roles? You know, I think a part of this, like, I think a storytelling, like sort of like people buy or customers buy because there's an emotional connection with the product. Or how do you create a value for the customers that they can't refuse? And you can't really do that just with data. I think the data can inform the pricing, the offer, but then you need a rockstar marketer to really... <laughs> frame that into a story with an emotional connection, but then you need to test the hell out of it, right? And um, sort of like mastering those elements, you know, and I would say I'm like jack of all trades, master of none, right? But surrounding myself with people like yourself, right? When you were 
marketing marketing at Integral astonished, and we had like 600 customers. You know, when you came in, you looked at the value proposition, and you were identifying pieces that we need to really have a different take, right, in terms of value creation and how do we build the software and go to market, right? Like all those things, I think if you're observing, you can learn. If you're surrounded by the right people, you have the right partnership, there is trust, you're vulnerable, you tend to connect with people at a much deeper level. When you connect there, sort of like what you have to aspire to do if you happen to be in the technology or engineering role, or it could be finance or you know, you really have to understand the why behind different things. And I think the why behind different things, sometimes it's very fundamental truths or first elements. And I think if you can break a problem down into the first elements, you know, you can, you have a chance at learning those things, you know. So that has been my approach, you know. I'm not afraid to ask questions that could be really dumb, you know. Like I still remember, like I have a book here sitting in my library, you know, that's on selling on in sales. So I still recall like in 2009 or 10, I was not really good at sales, although I was uh, part of team selling software to Fortune 500, but I didn't really know a lot about sales. So it was re- really reading about first, what is the right framework? It's spin, it's situation, problem, ident- uh, investigation, need, and then surrounding again back with the salespeople, seeing how they are doing it over and over again. So those seeds are planted in my mind and they become saplings and then you nurture them. And you pick those skills up. If you think about throughout the years, how has your definition of success changed and you know, your aspiration for yourself personally? Wow, that's a deep question, Dina. <laughs> I think definition of success is relative, right? So when you're early on in your life and you're really hungry, I think the first mountain that you climb, and if you don't have financial independence, you know, you want to become financially free or have some independence so that you can have a family. But I think once you get there, and maybe sometimes you fall in the valley and you have to rise again, but let's presume for this conversation that doesn't happen. I think for the second phase, uh, success becomes more about like balancing success in what you do. It's not financial alone. It's finding fulfillment and having a deeper connection with what you do with a purpose or an impact and that is well-rounded with your family life or so ensure, to ensure that you are having success and, ha- and creating happiness for yourself and others. And I, and I think it's really critical to have a mission or a purpose because if you don't have that, you know, when you are sort of like knocked down by University of Hard Knocks, you know, like in those like tougher days, you know, it helps you lift up because you are making an impact. So for me, it's like balancing success and happiness. And under success, there's financial rewards, but more important is impact and mission. And happiness comes from fulfilling work plus family plus things that you do outside, you know, your professional life. Yeah, you talked a lot about the importance of mission, whether it's in a company or in your personal life. How do you think about mission and, and defining purpose? Yeah, for the reason I came to Purple Carrot, right? Because I've been a plant-based majority of my life. I grew up in the northern part of India. You know, I still remember the dinner time conversations with my mom and my family, and they had such a lasting impact. So to me, a meal is an experience. My values personally was were, were defined by really, you know, plant-based eating. But we at Purple Carrot don't prescribe that for everyone. Our products are really for flexitarians. But purpose and or mission is sort of like you you're rallying an organization behind 
a bigger impact or a bigger purpose that either solves for a problem that is much more meaningful than a business model. And I find that lots of organizations are doing lots of things and they don't have crystallization. What is the North Star? To me, a North Star is a combination of clearly defined mission plus clearly defined business model. So if I were to rephrase this is basically keeping a balance between the impact that you want to have on the world, but thinking about it not just in terms of the the impact on the world, but within the if you're doing it within a company, keeping in mind the profitability and the fact that ultimately you're responsible for running a business. I wanted to talk about something else. So you've had a lot of experience working with uh, companies that had private investors of different nature. What are some of the key things that you learn in communicating with them and representing, on one hand, advocating for the company and the overall business, but on the other hand, realizing that you are, you know, at serving the need of the investors as well? Yeah, no, I think it's a combination of, I think so with investors, sort of like you can break it down into like three segments, you know, when things are going really well, when things are going okay, and when things are not going well, right? So when, let's start with when things are going okay, you know, sort of, uh, it's really important that as a leader, you're thinking about shareholder value. You are thinking about sort of like, what is the business model refinement that needs to happen to really to get to profitability? I think if you look around today, you know, there are lots of company companies in the direct-to-consumer space you know, they're not profitable. They were funded by lots and lots of like investor money and they were, the investor capital was really leading to, you know, heavy marketing, which led to customer growth, but that customer growth is not this high churn rate and it's not profitable. So in the OK stage, I think as we are rewriting sort of like the, you know, investor economics, you know, it's really important to pay attention to a business model crystallizing sort of like what are the critical KPIs and can you get the business model there? I think in the OK state, it's really important to do that. And sort of like in the high stage when you're flying, you know, you always have to think about like, what's the end game? Is the end game to scale or is the end game to sell? And aligning with the investor there is, there is really important. And when things are not going well, right? There, I think it becomes really important to remain in sync with investors on week bi-weekly basis to share the wins and how you're turning the situation around if it's the culture or the model or the team they're sort of like you have to really ensure that you're not losing the confidence of your investors you're gaining it and you gain that by high level of transparency on things that are working and not working when things are not working you have to bring them in the conversation so that they feel included if you don't do that, you have a risk of they'll feel like you're an outsider or they are an outsider and you lose trust. So I think when things are not going well, you have to really retain that trust and ensure that you can have everyone going in the same direction as much as you can. I, I realize that this may be confidential. Is there an example of like a type of conversation that somebody may have that you would be comfortable sharing for somebody who who's listening you know somebody who is executive leader in in a company that's going through a rough spot so I was with a high growth startup you know they had raised like 100 million dollars plus the business model was really mission driven but not profitable 
I was only there for the last 16 months of the company. The goal was to go public, but something happened in the external market that the external market conditions changed. As a result, the profitability of the business model declined. So what I was trying to do was to tech-enable that business by creating a marketplace, which was pretty novel. And that idea itself had a lot of legs. And when the whole business, the base business, they really had to, some parts of the business were sold, some went to bankruptcy, the part that I was building, the investors were trying to launch that as a new co. But in that, you know, the lesson that I learned, Dino, was there were heavyweight investors, VC firms in the mix, but they all came up with different interest in how to take that new co as a separate company. And back then, I didn't have a lot of experience how to align them. And sort of like they were all trying to do what's best for their VC firm, not thinking about the, the you know, multiple rounds of funding. And investors were like not on the same page how to design the cap table for the new co. So back then, sort of if I had the ground rules for that engagement clarified, investors aligned on the on those rules, maybe there would have been a different outcome. Because I think when you when you have when you get into controversy, it creates a lot of misery. And misery, people don't show up with their best selves. So if they are coming up with their emotional selves out of fear, self-preservation, protection, you tend to think what is best for you and not for the entire shareholders. And that's where it went uh, sideways or it went really south. Yeah, so this brings up another question, and I think that maybe some of the people directly involved will, will know this, but I think we've been cautious enough that we have protected the privacy of, of the example. So the other question is, you know, as an executive that ends up in a position like that, how do you think about when it's time to maybe stop trying because the situation is too complex? So I think I'm probably the wrong person to ask that, you know, because I tend to stay throughout things and endure till the end, you know, and uh, still having a hope that I can help turn things around. So, Dino, my learning through this, and I don't know if it's right, I'm still learning, you know, sort of like you can view the relationship with your investors like if you have a relationship with your partner, right? Could be you're dating someone, you're married. If you have a lot of like red signals, and I think if you're not paying attention to them, it's insanity to expect different results, you know. So sort of like paying attention to those signals, you know, and that might be one way to do it. And those signals could be that maybe they don't want to put further capital into the business or they want to break the company into different parts, you know. And I'm not saying any decision there is right or wrong, right? Because as investors, you know, they also have their how the VC and private equity firms are structured, they are also responsible to their shareholders and they have to also answer, right? So it's sort of like the winning game, everyone wins, but when it's losing proposition, you know, that's when you really, investors are going to think about what's best for them. But if you're on the executive team, you have to think about not only shareholder value, you have to think about customer and the business model and the employees, you know. Yeah. So first of all, thank you very much for being willing to share all of this. I want to go now to a more positive story because at Purple Carrot, you joined the company when it was in the early stages and have been part of the team. And then we're part of the successful sale and then took a role as CEO and after leading the integration. So 
for somebody who joins a company with a team of founders and then is key part of the growth, what are some of the key thoughts and steps as going through, you know, going through something like an acquisition and transition in the company from being an independent high growth startup to being part of a larger organization with different responsibilities and different culture? Yeah, you know, at the highest level, right? So I came to Purple Carrot when it was really in a garage, you know, we had uh, Andy and Brian had an idea. There was not yet just product to market. There was not an office yet. They wanted me to be a co-founder, but I went to do a different startup, which was really machine learning, customer engagement for banking with 50% of the traffic. So, But I remained with Purple Carrot as an advisor because really the mission of Purple Carrot has, to be, has always been an attraction to me from the very start, really to take plant-based eating mainstream in a way that works for you. And uh, given that, you know, I've been vegetarian throughout my life, that mission or purpose was my reason to always remain with Purple Carrot. So I think in the journey of the company, it was really exciting to see the growth that we have from the very start. It took off. And then we had Tom Brady. That was another boost to the company. And then we got acquired by ORD, which is a company that is publicly listed in, in Japan. And their sort of the value proposition was ORD has been doing business in Japan for a long period of time. They've been there, done that. So they know the operations fulfillment. And they sort of have a code that they have refined over time, over and over again. And we can scale Purple Carrot faster by learning from them. That was the reason for the acquisition. Purple Carrot, we had massive growth during COVID in uh, we are putting the company back in the growth mode again, but the parent company is also helping us sort of bring that, not the secret code, sort of like their learnings that they have painfully learned over the last uh, 15 to 20 years to help us go to market faster. That's great. And, and you know, in terms of transition in a culture from, as I said, an independent company to being part of a larger company, what were some of the key steps that you took? Yeah, I think a lot of this is, you know, integration. And I had gone through like integration a couple of times before in my professional life, you know, early on when the healthcare company was sold to Sun Healthcare on the West Coast. At CA Technologies, there were a lot of companies acquired. And then at Thurston Media, we were acquired by advertising.com. And I've gone through like acquisition both sides multiple times. Here at Purple Carrot and ORD, why it's different is there's a... we sort of like you can think about there are subject matter experts with ORD that are more heavily engaged, helping us sort of um, refining the value proposition as needed. It could be on the operational side, on the marketing side. Although we do have, uh, you know, a different culture, different language, Japanese versus English, we are both immersing, both sides are immersing in the learning, the cultural aspects and how to really learn the how-to from the parent company and the parent company is learning back from us, you know, how to go ma- to market faster, could be through testing or through marketing. So we're creating that symbiotic relationship where we are sharing the how-to guides or with the subject matter experts. I don't know if I can divulge more than that. No, no, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't want you to divulge anything that is proprietary or confidential. I have another question, and this is more in general going back to the to the theme for somebody who's listening here and thinking about wanting to follow a path from the technical side to a CEO type role. You've mentioned that you've taken 
you know, two or three roles in the past that were not uh, product management. Like, in, is there one that you feel like that was a great move in terms of really expanding my learning? There was one, Dina, this is back at Integral. So Integral was really, I think for your listeners, you know, it was a services play for independent insurance agencies to find, sell, keep customers. Because I think when you're smaller agencies or mid-size, you don't really know how to market, represent yourself, acquire customers and build a relationship with them over time. So Astonish was that value proposition, which was sold on the premise of software. But when you and I got to the company, it was really services-led. As a result, the customer success team at Integral was humongous. I think there were 25, 35 people. I can't remember the number. And they had like, um, back then what happened was, you know, they the customer success team was working with insurance agents, but there was no like dedicated one-on-one relationship. So when I took the team over, I was asked to take the customer service success team. And it was all about thinking, having one-on-one relationship with an agency and a customer success manager, identifying the key KPIs that needs to be influenced for a particular agency, and how to put the actions in place to go do that. Sometimes the actions were, they need to really fix their process. So when a customer is looking for an insurance code, they can get back in a timely fashion. So how do we evolve the software to go do that in an automated way? So in a nutshell, it was alignment of customer success team with what customer customers were looking for outcomes and then refining the software to do that in an automated way. So all those learnings sort of coming from customer first angle and that role were crucial for me to really be in the seat of a customer success manager. Sometimes, you know, have those painful conversations or difficult conversations, sort it out, figure out what's the pain point, solve that through services and then automate that through software. That's great. So basically, being in the service team allowed you to actually not only develop your skills as a manager and a leader, but also it had an impact on your skill as a product designer. That's great. And I think that that's a good point to stop the sort of business side of our conversation. If people want to find you, LinkedIn is the best place. That is correct, Dina. Great. We're going to go to the more personal question. So do you have a hobby or an interest outside of work and how has that maybe impacted the way that you work? Yeah, I mean, I think my life is pretty full. <laughs> I, I learn a lot from nature, love hiking, love walking, also love playing racquetball, love spending time with my family and reading. I, I'm not a, a big uh, Netflix. Uh, my way of sort of like keeping myself engaged is to be doing something, you know, which I know it may not be the the best answer, but that's what gives me happiness, Tina. That's great. And now this is my favorite question that I ask everybody. It is, is there an expression or a cliche or a piece of business jargon that drives you crazy? And what is it? It's the concentric circles in PowerPoint, you know, where you're trying to put everything, slam everything in a slide and say it has synergy. You know, Maybe that's what gets to me, you know, it's maybe BS without really rooted in uh, reality, you know. Final question, I call it food for the body or food for the soul. And you can answer both sides if you want but basically food for the body is like a recipe or a drink that you really love and you know if you go the so right a book 
or a piece of music art you said you don't watch movies so maybe not a movie but something that you love and inspires you given that i'm leading purple carrot so it has to be a food answer first right so i think at purple carrot you'll find like unique recipes and sometimes you know the combination of like ingredients is so unique you know one example is you know my favorite is like potato malai kofta with the uh, spinach and uh, tomato chutney and that comes as a meal kit so i'd never tried that before that you can do something with um, malai kofta and combine that with the uh, spinach and uh, tomato chutney it's really thanks thanks to the great culinary team that we have and i think on the so that's really for on the food angle i can have like hundreds of recipes and you know you can come to my house and we can cook <laughs> together so i think that could be its own podcast and maybe i can have the head of culinary join us you know or someone from the culinary team I, and i i feel that you know food is like from different angles there's the the food that we eat but it's also the emotions and the thoughts and i think for that angle for me it's really meditation and if you want to check a book out it's um, auto autobiography of a yogi by paramhansa yogananda that's like one of the books for me that i've read over and over again multiple times okay fabulous Rishi, thanks so much. It's been great to have you. I'm so excited to do this with you and to finally have you on the podcast. Probably took me a little too long to ask you, but it's great to have you with me. Thank you for having me, Dina. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Also, make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts, Audible, or Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating or a review. Now stick around, because after the credits, I am going to play a song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. For links to Rishi and Purple Carrot, go to the episode page on my podcast website. The site is al4ep.com, spelled with the number 4. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. Please make sure you follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. The handle in both places is at al4edp, spelled with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, arranged and recorded by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, as promised, here is a song by Susan Cattaneo. Today is just a beautiful and reflective song from her album All Is Quiet. The song is called Blackbirds. Enjoy. Blackbirds fill my head sometimes Dark words my mouth gives them wings to fly You say we belong 
Four and twenty blackbirds 